Good morning. A lot of y'all hiding in the back. <laughs> good, good back row Baptist. Uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 27 through 34 this morning. Uh, we have reached message number 100 in our ongoing series of Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And if you're visiting with us, or just as a reminder, what we're doing in this series is we're taking all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're trying to compile them all together as chronologically as possible in order to get the full image of Jesus Christ's life, his ministry, the meaning and purpose of it, ultimately leading to his resurrection and ascension. <clears throat> Back in 1999, the NFL decided to make a rule change, and uh, they introduced the challenge flag. And if you're not an NFL fan or a football fan, basically what the challenge flag was is they would give the coach a red flag to which the coach could throw it out and challenge a call on the field that the referees made. So if a referee made a call that they were certain happened, and then the coach would have other coaches up in a booth, and they'd be watching a video and replay of it, and they would buzz down, and he'd throw out the flag because he was certain they made a wrong call. And uh, the whole idea was to reverse a wrong call and make sure the game was being played appropriately and called appropriately. Well, if you watch much TV, uh, this last year, Progressive Insurance has taken that idea of the challenge flag and applied it to different circumstances of life. And one of my favorites, and you can YouTube it if you want, is the situation between a husband and wife who appear to be going camping. And as they're unpacking the car, uh, the husband asks the wife if she remembered to grab the life jackets. And the wife responds, no, because you said you packed them. And so they go back and forth for a little bit in this conversation to which the husband pulls out a red challenge flag. And the wife looks at him kind of mischievously and says, go ahead, you've got one left. And so he throws it. And then all out of the woods comes this review uh, group of people and they're looking at this monitor and they're listening and of course it ends up that the wife is correct and she looks at husband and says, well that's pretty embarrassing. Um, so we know it's a, a fictional commercial, right? Because it should be the husband that was right and not the wife. Amen? All the husbands just put their heads down. They did not even look at me in that moment. Well I bring this up because this morning we're dealing with a response to Jesus. Uh, three different people responding to him and certain about who he is and what he could do, one of which is certainly wrong. Uh, so let's read in the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 9. And Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind man came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you have an incredible love for us, one that we've come to understand but we don't fully grasp. 
Lord, we thank for the promise of your word that nothing can separate us from that love. For the promise of your word that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we come before you and we ask that your spirit just speak to all of our hearts, that we have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that is ready to be impacted by you, impacted by your love for us, Lord. And if we have something that needs to be changed or disciplined, transformed, Father, we surrender that to you. You have full authority in this place. We come before you as your children to submit to you. Father, you are worthy, you are holy. You are awesome, and we thank you for being our God. In this moment, Lord, I pray for the individuals who may be here this morning who do not know you as their God, who do not know your, your Son as their Savior, and Lord, that your Spirit would do the thing only your Spirit can do and bring them to a place of repentance through conviction, and that today would be the day of their salvation. But what else, Lord, I pray that your will and your kingdom would be done in this place, that we would continue to worship you through the studying of your word, and that you alone receive the glory today. And praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So beginning in Matthew chapter 8, what Matthew has been led to do, again the Spirit was driving Matthew to write these things out, is he's delivering miracle after miracle that are performed by Jesus. And this is seen through healings and casting out demons to the calming of the storm to raising a child from the dead. And what Matthew does here in verse 27 is he connects this event to the miracle that we looked at last week when Jesus went to Jairus' house and he raised Jairus' 12-year-old daughter from the dead. This is what is, we're being told here in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, it's pointed out that as Jesus left Jairus' house, and he's going about and he's heading, obviously, to his own house in our passage. That's what we're told is when he entered the house, which gives us a little information to place the series of events in the city of Capernaum. In the Gospels, it's shown that Jesus has set up his kind of home base of operation in that town. Most likely this house is Simon Peter's house, which he visited at one point in time and healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. We're also told that before entering the house, in verse 27, that two blind men began following him. Now what's interesting about this is how did the two blind men know it was Jesus? Well, because Matthew ties this event to the previous miracle... We know in that miracle that Jesus cast out the crowd that was in Jairus' house that were mourning and cast them out into the street, and he only allowed Jairus and Jairus' wife and three of his disciples to remain. It all would have become aware that were out in the streets that were mourning what took place amongst the crowds as the morning goes from mourning of the dead girl to now marveling that Jesus has resurrected her from the dead. So this no doubt would have attracted attention of people around, and most likely this is how the blind man came to know that this was in fact Jesus, a miracle worker. They were probably outside on the streets begging. That was the lifestyle of a blind man. They would be outside begging for food, begging for money. They had to do that to survive. They wouldn't be employed by anybody. They most likely wouldn't even have had a home. They probably lived on the streets as well. Yet without ever seeing a miracle of Jesus Christ, without ever being able to even look into his face, these blind men became certain about something. The blind men were certain of Jesus. 
As Jesus was passing, most likely a crowd was following because that seems to be a thing that happens in the gospel. They begin crying out there in verse 27. That word crying out literally means they continuously shouted. They were screaming loudly. And they were shouting, have mercy on us, son of David. This would have been something that they would have been yelling over and over again as they followed this crowd to wherever Jesus was going. They were crying out for mercy. They're crying out for pity. They're crying out for compassion, something they had done all their life. But now they turn it to Jesus, who they've heard these reports of what he's been able to do. And they're wanting him to obviously heal their blindness. Again, gathering a little context concerning individuals who are blind. It carried a very stigma, stigmata, or stigma in, in this day and age. Even when God's people were told in the word of God that they were to have compassion on the blind and to take care of the blind, throughout Scripture, blindness was typically attached to frailty. It was typically attached to a sin being punished or God's judgment coming upon an individual or individual's. Jesus is going to have to deal with this stigma later on in his ministry as his disciples pose a question about another blind man. Now, this belief is actually taken from Scripture. So the Jewish people weren't incredibly far off. They weren't making stuff up. For example, if you remember in the book of Genesis, Isaac was tricked by his son Jacob because he could not see. He was blind. It was a sign of his frailty. The people of Sodom, when Lot took the guests into his house, tried to break down the door, and they were stricken with blindness. When the Syrian army attacked God's people, the prophet Elijah prayed for God to strike the entire army with blindness. Samson, due to sharing about his hair in the Nazarite vow he was under, had his eyes gouged out when his strength was taken. Even in the New Testament, when we look into the book of Acts, when Saul was on the road to Damascus and he encountered Jesus Christ, he became blind for three days. These men were crying out to Jesus. They were asking him for mercy because of the way society would have looked at him, probably the way they even felt within their own hearts, that they were outcasts, they were overlooked. Nobody wanted them. And just as a sub-point, these physical elements that we mentioned concerning blindness and other ones aren't always attached to sin or frailty or punishment. In Scripture, they are at times. But sometimes our bodies are just weak, and so we get sick. We have physical elements that happen. That's why we get colds and flus and the beautiful thing called COVID. It's also interesting is the important title they used when they're crying out to Jesus. Verse 27, they call out as the son of David. It's a messianic title. They are certain that this Jesus Christ that is walking down the street and they're calling out to him, they are certain this is the long-awaited Messiah that we, the Jewish people, have been waiting for probably why Jesus didn't address them initially in the streets, but waited until he could get to a house to have a private encounter with them. We'll turn to that in a moment. Though these two men could not see physically, which means they never saw one of Jesus' miracles. They never saw him healing or casting anybody out. They only heard the reports, but they were spiritually sighted by faith. Douglas O'Donnell points out that they are the first to see both Jesus' royalty and also his fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew which this title is used concerning Jesus, but it brings Matthew's Gospel full circle as this is how he started out in Matthew chapter 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. 
This may be why the reason of the two blind men is only found here in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's intention in writing his Gospel is writing to the Jewish audience so that they can be assured that Jesus Christ is in fact the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament, that he is in fact the Messiah they have been waiting for. He is in fact the true Savior of the world. And though this title is truth, at this point in time Jesus wanted kept under wraps. Hence he goes into a house. He goes into a private area. And then after he heals the blind man, he tells them, don't tell anybody about this. This is what is known as the messianic secret. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he tells people this several times, not to tell anybody, not to say anything to anyone. This is done in part because Scripture reveals that the Jewish people as a whole, they wanted a physical king. They want a physical kingdom on this earth. And at times, they would actually try to force Jesus into the role that they wanted him to be. But he didn't come for that. He came to deliver forgiveness for our sins. He came to be our king of kings and to bring forth God's spiritual kingdom. Before Jesus heals the blind man, he first asks them a question. He wants to examine the validity of their faith. And who they say he is and say, and say what they believe he is. And, they respond, and then he responds when they agree that they believe he is in fact the son of David. According to your faith be it done to you in verse 29. This isn't saying because of the measure of faith. If we have the right amount of faith then we can expect the miraculous. Jesus is not saying the better our faith is the better results will be. Jesus is telling these men and us, because you have faith, you can expect faith-filled outcomes. Faith can be read as trust. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is trusting God for the things that our hearts long for and believing without a shadow of a doubt that it can happen if it's God's will, even if we can't perceive how it can be done. That's faith. And it was their faith in who Jesus was which led to their healing. But then after he heals them, look in verse 30. He sternly warns them. See that no one knows about this. That word sternly can be read as snorted. Meaning Jesus was very serious about this issue. He did not want them to go out and tell him. Now, obviously, when they go out into the world, people are going to realize that something's changed about them, right? They knew that they were once blind beggars, and now they're walking around and they can see. But Jesus, in this moment, is wanting them to keep it quiet. He sternly warns them. And even though these once blind men had this incredible faith in who Jesus was, they were certain about his identity. They were ultimately disobedient to his command which reveals through Scripture that they did not, in fact, love Jesus. Because Jesus says that if we love him, we'll keep his commands. I want to say we could hardly blame him, though. Can you imagine if you had some physical ailment in your life that is automatically changed? You're automatically healed? We would probably go out parading it as well. But Jesus does this in this moment because he did not come for fanfare. He did not come for people to 
develop their own thoughts on who he should be and ideas on what he should do. And so in this moment, as we see an episode of faith, we have to understand to have faith in Jesus, we cannot develop our own identity of who Jesus is. Our faith is grounded in Jesus to which the Bible reveals, not the Jesus we or others want him to be. As the blind men leave, the action continues there in verse 32. It says, as they were going away, as the blind men were literally walking out the door, a new group arrives, like this is a doctor's office or something, and they're bringing a demon-possessed man who was mute. What's interesting about this county is the encounter is the brevity or the shortness of Matthew's description of it. We aren't told who brought the man just enough that it was enough people to form a crowd. We aren't even told what Jesus said to the man or what he did to cast out the demon that possessed the man. And what this tells us is the point is not the exorcism. The point of verses 32 through 34 is the response to the exorcism and response to who Jesus is. When the demon was cast out, the man who could not speak began to speak. And notice that the crowds marveled. They were amazed. They were in awe. They were in wonder, and they were saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel, verse 33. This is the first response to this demon and other things Jesus has done. The crowds were certain of the evidence. Now, this statement that they, that, that they said, nothing was ever anything like this seen in Israel, is most likely a conclusion that all that has happened in this day. And we have to keep in mind all the Scripture, and we put it all together. So Jesus heals a woman who has a disease for 12 years. She spent all that she had, could not find any sort of relief, and he heals her in the midst of this crowd. Then he goes to Jairus' house, and he raises a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Then he heals two blind men who apparently what the idea is that they never could see, and now he's casting out demons. And so Matthew is bringing all this together, and the crowds are seeing this, they're witnessing it, they're hearing it, and never was anything like this seen in Israel. Now, obviously, Jesus has been doing miracles already. He's obviously been healing people. He's already been casting out demons, but the four miracles, which are back to back to back to back to back, reveal this. They reveal Jesus' authority and his power. He came to this world. He's bringing a newness of life. Through these four miracles here in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is revealing that he has the power to reverse the impacts of sin. Through these four miracles, he's revealing he has the power to restore life. He had the power to heal infirmities. And he has the power over the enemy who is Satan. No wonder the crowds marveled. Again, they were in awe. They were amazed. Nothing like this has ever been seen or heard before coming from one man. And so they were certain because of the evidence that Jesus is different. There's something different about him. And this is the same evidence that we have and the evidence that we are to be to this world. Jesus has healed us from our sins. Jesus has given us a new life. Jesus has given us a new identity. And he's given us a new purpose. Jesus has released us from the clutches of the enemy. This is why we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. That means completely obliterated. We're no longer attached to that old sinful way of life. And he says, behold, 
Look at this, the new has come. And because of this transformation through salvation in Jesus Christ, we are now commissioned to be ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. As God's people, we are the evidence of God's love. We are the evidence of God's mercy and his grace. We are the evidence to this world of the power of Christ's resurrection. We are the evidence to this world that there is only one God, And there is only one way to that God, and that is found in Jesus Christ. We are the evidence of what we call the gospel, the good news. And knowing this, we cannot be like this crowd. This crowd would eventually be persuaded to think otherwise, even though they had seen and witnessed and heard about the evidences. This crowd would eventually turn on Jesus later in the gospels and call for him to be crucified. When Paul wrote to Timothy in the letters we call 1 and 2 Timothy, he charged Timothy over and over again to, be remain, to remain faithful, to remain faithful to the calling he had despite the out, outside world's doubts and outside world's persecution. Timothy was not to be persuaded to think that his faith was in vain, but to constantly remember and remain in Christ. If we are in Christ... We have seen and experienced the evidence of the power and authority of Christ. So we must continue, as Paul wrote to Timothy, to fan into into flame the gift of God. And what is that gift? We're forgiven. We have salvation. We have the promise of eternal life. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us, an eternal inheritance that will never spoil or fade. And because we're to fan this into flame... We are to present ourselves to God as one approved, rightly handling the word of truth. And here's the thing. While we do this, we have to know this. When we live for Christ, when we preach Christ, when we represent Christ, we will be persecuted like Christ. Finally, there's another group present. Look in verse 34. Pharisees said, He casts out demons By the prince of demons. Some translations have that as Beelzebub. He's literally speaking of Satan. This isn't the first time, nor is it going to be the last time, that the Pharisees make this accusation towards Jesus. One simple takeaway that we can have from this is that when we live for Christ and we're seeking after God, there are always going to be complainers. Pharisees always thought this is one of their greatest accusations they had against Jesus. We have to keep in mind as this, well, the Pharisees also saw the miracles. The Pharisees also saw the reports. They also heard his teachings. They saw the healings. They witnessed him casting out demons. So why did they come to this conclusion? Why were these Pharisees more blind than the two blind men in the beginning? Well, the Pharisees were certain of their theology. And Jesus was going to throw the red flag down on it. He was going to challenge it throughout his ministry. And he was going to show that they were wrong. Simplest definition of theology is the study and the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of the things of God. And we have to keep in mind, the Pharisees, man, they were devout studiers. They knew the Old Testament. They had to know the law. They were devout to the commandments of the law of God. So much that they started inventing their own laws that would go along with those laws. They had this earnest desire, and I know they're always 
captured as the villain in Scripture, but we have to understand their heart was an earnest desire to live a righteous life before God. But the problem is, in that earnest desire of making new laws to go with God's laws, they became self-righteous. They became so blind they couldn't see the things of God that were right before their eyes. Their flawed theology blinded them from God's theology. They felt they were always right. To which Jesus would speak against their self-righteousness. He would speak against the burdens that they put upon the people of God. The irony of these passages in verse 27 through 34 is that two two blind men were healed, but the Pharisees were too blind to see. The mute causing demon was cast out, and here the Pharisees are the ones who need to be muted which ultimately they would in a way when Jesus resurrected from the dead, but then they would still gripe and they would still complain and still cause cause havoc. See, Jesus was becoming a problem for them. The crowds were becoming more enamored with who he was than with with who they were. Jesus was ultimately beginning to disrupt the status quo. The Pharisees believed that the people should be looking at them They should be respecting them, marveling at them, because they're so religious. They know the things of God. But now the crowds are looking at this apparent untrained Nazarene. He's not even in the temple. He's out on the streets with the outcasts. And you overlooked, he's, he's eating with sinners. He's socializing with Samaritans. How could they respect such a man? See, the problem is, is their theology blinded them because how they interpret the Word of God and they used it for their benefit, not for the people's benefit. We have to understand the Word of God isn't to be used to benefit us in materialistic ways. The Word of God is meant to be used to benefit us in spiritual ways, in relational ways with God. And so if you come across any individual who's using the Word of God for their own personal gain or their advancement needs, I'll give you this warning, avoid them. Don't even give them the time of day, because that's not what the Word of God is for. And this is what the Pharisees were doing with God's Word. They appeared like they were close to God. They appeared like they were for God. But in the end, it's going to be revealed through Jesus Christ that they were, in fact, ungodly. And they were against him. They were whitewashed tombs. So how do we keep from falling into that trap? We have to take the Word of God for what it is. The Word of God is the voice of God recorded by men under the direction of the Holy Spirit for this purpose, our spiritual transformation, that we would become more like Christ that we would obtain the mind of Christ, that we would keep step with the Spirit, that we would walk as Christ walked, that we would have the heart of Christ for people. And so when we come to the Word of God and read it, we have to read it into context. And what I mean by that is we, we don't get to interpret the Word of God how we want to interpret it. We have to interpret it the way God wants us to interpret it, the way God has said it, the way God meant it. And so if we come to the Word of God and we begin twisting it and misinterpreting it and saying things that it never meant to say, then we become just as blind as these Pharisees 
And we develop our own false theology, which is not biblical or godly. And even more dangerous is when we do this, when God shows up, we'll be like these Pharisees and we won't even be able to see him. Biblical theology is the study and the knowledge of the things of God and how they should impact our life. What that means is if, if we're studying the Word of God and it's only becoming head knowledge, we're missing it. The Word of God is meant to be heart transformational. And that is what makes it a good biblical theology. See, these Pharisees, they spend hours upon hours in God's Word, but it never impacted their heart. I want to jump back to the beginning of the passage these blind men, they, they come to Jesus and they come for healing. But before Jesus is going to heal them, he asks them a question there in verse 28. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And this might be the question Jesus is asking you and me this morning concerning our sins. Do you believe Jesus is able to forgive all of your sins? It might be the question Jesus is asking us this morning concerning our salvation. Do you believe Jesus has the power and authority to save you? See, that question there is a question of faith. It's a question of trust. And in fact, these events in Matthew chapter 9, even go back to chapter 8, they're all about faith. They're all about trust. And it's all about a faith and trust in Christ alone. This is why Jesus tells us straight out in John chapter 14 that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. What he meant by that is no one gets into heaven except through Jesus Christ. So my question this morning is, have you ever expressed your faith and trust in this truth? Have you found forgiveness in Christ alone and been given eternal life? Have you confessed him as your Lord and Savior? And if you're here this morning and, and you know for certain you haven't, or you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering, I, I'm not sure, then I want to tell you how God reveals it to us. It, it begins by coming before God and telling God what we call prayer, God, I'm a sinner. I, I fall short of your holiness. I fall short of your perfection. I fall short of your standards. There's things in your word that I know I have gone against and been disobedient. That's sin. Anything against God is sin. And so we admit that to God through prayer, and then we tell God, but God, I believe in your son. I believe your son, Jesus Christ, came to this earth. He lived a life that I could not. He never sinned. He never lived outside your will. He lived a perfect life. And then he died on the cross for my sins. And they placed him in a tomb, but he rose again to show that he has the power and authority to forgive me of my sins and to grant me eternal life. And so once you admit it to God and you, you confess to God that you believe that in your heart, the, the Bible says that we have to confess it out loud. We have to make it public that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And when that happens, we will be given eternal life and forgiven past, present, future sins. Sins you don't even know you're going to commit yet. God will completely forgive it. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to make that confession of faith, 
We're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to ask you to come down. You can just sit in the front row. I'll sit by you. We'll pray together. We'll celebrate. I guarantee you there will not be a person in this room that will be ashamed. (laughs) But maybe you're here this morning, and you've gone to the Word of God, and you've heard what the Word of God has said, but you're unwilling to change. You've heard the reports. You've seen the news through the Word of God. You've heard of the miracles. You've heard what God's been telling you in your heart to do, but you're not willing to do it. Say this, you're living in a place of bad theology. And you're going to become blind when God shows up in your life because your ears are going to be clogged and your heart's going to be hard. And Maybe you need to come down and bow down and repent of that. Ask God to forgive you for that. And as we sang earlier, he loves you. He disciplines us because he loves us. I'm going to ask the worship team or Nick and Bridget to come out. They're going to lead us in a song. If you need to come forward, this is a time of invitation. What that means is I'm inviting you to come down. I'm inviting you to come and pray. I'm inviting you to come and confess Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and your need for him. It's a time of response because the word of God says we can't just be hearers of the word. We have to be doers of it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are the son of David. You are the Messiah. Thank you that you came and we have experienced the evidence of who you are. In this moment, Lord, I just pray if if someone's here and your spirit's working on their heart, that they need to make this the day of their salvation. That when we stand to sing this song, they can't stay where they are. And that they would move because you're drawing them to you. Father, forgive us those times that we hear what you're telling us to do. We see it clearly in your word, but we don't change. I thank for this church. I thank for this family. I thank you for what you're doing here. I thank for the way you continue to bless us. And Father, we just ask you to continue to receive the glory through Harvest Hill. And praise all in the name of Jesus.